Good evening, everyone. As you can see, I am not Jason Miles. I'm your host for tonight, Paul Prescott, on another episode of This Is Revolution. If you're new to the channel, please hit like and subscribe. And if you're enjoying what you see, uh, make sure to hit the notifications bell as we are constantly adding new episodes, doing cross streams with other channels, and adding additional new programming like what you're going to see tonight. Um, also, before we start, um, there's some big news in the TIR camp. Jason is finally going to have his work published. His essay called I Was a Teenage Anarchist will be available next month in print from Everyday Analysis. Um, and there have been talks uh, brewing about a live intimate book launch in the Bay Area. So as soon as Jason has more details about that, we will post it. Um, but for now, the link to his book is in the description and the show notes. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, labor is having a moment right now in this country. We're living through an uptick of labor struggles and strikes in all kinds of sectors. Um, workers at Amazon and Starbucks are organizing. UPS workers almost went on strike. Uh, writers and actors in Hollywood are on strike. Auto workers, of course, currently and tomorrow, actually, the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history could possibly take place at Kaiser Hospital in California. And we're also seeing public support for labor unions at the highest it's been in decades and the most friendly uh, National Labor Relations Board, arguably in generations. And of course, right now, the fight that is capturing people's imagination is the strike of the United Auto Workers at the big three auto company, companies, um, Ford, General Motors and Stellantis, which um, was formerly known as Chrysler. So are we seeing the beginnings of a true labor revival in this country? Um, our guest tonight is Jack Rasmus and recently wrote a, about the strike in the L.A. Progressive, asking the question if this is the end of concession bargaining in the United States. He wrote, um, the question is whether the UAW can begin the end of the two tier system and pay gap and get a decent settlement that brings auto workers paltry 18 to 32 dollars an hour pay into the 21st century. It remains to be seen. We may be witnessing the beginning of the end of concession bargaining that has for 40 plus years devastated American workers' wages and contributed greatly to the growing income inequality afflicting American workers. Emphasis here on the May. The UA strike is in this sense historic. So I'm excited to welcome to the show, Jack Rasmus. Glad to join you. Thanks for being here. If, if I was Jason, I would have the sound effects and the round of applause. Um, but, you know, secret to the audience, we do not have a live audience. Um, so I guess first, I mean, um, you know, you kind of start your piece and there's been a lot in the news about the strategy of this strike, what is being called the stand up strike strategy. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what is the stand up strike strategy? How does it compare to past UAW strikes? And you know, why do you say this is not necessarily as innovative as people are talking about in the media? Yeah, well, the media is making a big deal of the fact that uh, the UAW for the first time struck uh, all three of the uh, assembly uh, companies. Uh, well, they only struck one plant for a whole week of each. Uh, they call that the stand-up strike. Uh, I guess that's a play on words from the great strike of 37, the sit-down strike that uh, formed the beginning of the United Auto Workers. Uh, that was quite an historic uh, event, uh, and it was successful, uh, so successful that the Supreme Court uh, quickly moved to uh, make sit-down strikes illegal. 
So you know it was uh, you know a very effective uh, form of striking. Uh, and then uh, the no strike, uh, no, no sit down was uh, codified there in the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which uh, uh, pretty much uh, took a hammer to various forms of striking uh, that were quite successful in the 30s and 40s, uh, sympathy strikes and uh, other kinds of strikes. Uh, and uh, that made it illegal. And then they closed the final loophole with the Lyndon Griffin Act of 59, on uh, secondary boycotts. In other words, uh, striking a company uh, like the Teamsters would uh, uh, to support another union, uh, refusing to handle their uh, uh, shipping uh, as this act of solidarity. So there's a long history of uh, imposing um, restrictions on the right to strike in this country. It goes back quite a long, long ways. Taft-Hartley required uh, a cool, they call it a cooling off period where the government got involved in twisted arms. Uh, any strike that has a potential for national impact, um, Taft-Hartley can be invoked and uh, the government will step in. Uh, and whenever the government steps in, uh, you know, the government really isn't interested uh, in helping uh, anybody uh, on the worker side. Uh, they just want to get a settlement as quick as they can. Uh, I've been in federal mediation sessions uh, uh, a number of times in my younger years when I was a, a elected uh, local president and uh, negotiator. Uh, and, uh, you know, they just play games uh, to try to get uh, both sides uh, somehow to to come to a settlement. Uh, but the point is, there's a long history of uh, strike limitations in this country. I, I just, you know, touched the surface of uh, of this legislation, and then there's all kind of court decisions and all kind of NLRB decisions and uh, arbitrators' decisions and so forth. Uh, I like that metaphor of uh, of Gulliver, you know, that picture of Gulliver tied down with all the ropes and so forth. Uh, uh, and uh, the law, the legal system, uh, has uh, labor Gulliver uh, really uh, tied down uh, in a number of ways, and this this system uh, has been uh, expanding uh, ever since World War II in a number of ways, not just no strike, uh, to really tie the hands and uh, prevent the exercise of union power uh, in strike situations. Uh, There's a whole history of that. Uh, in fact, in my uh, in my play, uh, my, my musical play, 1934, uh, which is about uh, the 1934 longshore strike, maritime strike, uh, a general strike. I have a song called uh, "The Legal Web," uh, so I won't go into the lyrics and so forth at this point. But uh, uh, the point is, um, once again, there's a long history of tying down labor. Uh, one of the ways they've really uh, also tied down labor, and this is relevant to the UAW strike, uh, is um, with uh, concession bargaining. What is concession bargaining? Uh, concession bargaining is where the unions uh, give up what they already achieved in prior negotiations. Uh, you see, for most of the period uh, from the late 30s, 40s, and uh, up to uh, uh, the early 1970s, uh, labor expanded, the unions expanded uh, their contracts into a whole number of areas. They not only advanced uh, uh, you know, benefits and wages and so forth, but they expand uh, workers' rights and union rights in a number of ways in collective bargaining. Uh, they were quite successful. 
but that sort of comes begins uh, coming to an end in the late 1970s and, and the uh, uh, you know historical marker there uh, that I I believe uh, begins concession bargaining uh, on a general scale uh, is the 1979 Chrysler strike in which uh, Jimmy Carter personally intervened uh, and with Doug Fraser uh, who later was given a, a a seat on the board of GM, I think, no, Chrysler was, uh, they pretty much uh, got the workers uh, uh, to settle and uh, to give up a, a number of benefits and language in their contract. And uh, that sort of set off uh, what then uh, became general concession bargaining, particularly manufacturing and construction uh, for a number of, of decades. And the question today is, uh, uh, can uh, this, these concessions uh, be stopped and reversed? Uh, that's what we're seeing. And there's, there's some, uh, some indication that that's the case, uh, but it's still pretty much up, up in the air. Um, just to look back historically one more time, you know, uh, most workers and people don't realize uh, about the greatest strike and successful strike wave in this country was in 1970, uh, in which uh, the construction trades, which had large regional contracts, uh, set off the pattern uh, of significant gains. And the Teamsters who delivered to construction sites uh, then picked it up and then manufacturing jumped in uh, and then Longshore jumped in. And uh, yeah, the, the workers were, as well. Yeah, mm. they were quite successful, so successful. And I'm going to stop and, and, and make sure you understand how successful that strike wave, the biggest strike wave we ever had, by the way, uh, in terms of total total um, you know members out on the street, the unions won 25% wage increases in the first year of a three-year contract. 25% in the first year three-year contract. All those unions I mentioned, and they were so success successful, the employers couldn't stop them. Uh, Richard Nixon had to step in and freeze wages, mm -hmm. uh, freeze the implementation of those contracts and roll them back to five and a half percent. In other words, the government had to come in on the side of the employer in a very blatant way uh, and assist the employer and roll back. And then then over the 1970s, it was, uh, you know, the big, big companies started planning, how can we stop this? How can we roll this back? Uh, the unions are too strong. Social movements were too uh, too aggressive uh, in the 70s. And uh, under Jimmy Carter, uh, we we see the formation of what was called the Business Council and the Business Roundtable for the first time. Uh, and they developed a strategy uh, rolling back uh, unions. Uh, and that strategy became part of uh, neoliberal uh, policies. Uh, in my book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, uh, I identify four major policy areas uh, that define neoliberalism. And one of those is industrial policy. In other words, privatization and uh, uh, deregulation, but also uh, compressing wages uh, and uh, destroying unions whenever they could in various ways. And there were various ways they, they began to do it under Reagan. Uh, the PATCO strike that is often referenced is, is just the tip of an iceberg of what went on in the 80s and after that. Uh, and make a long story short, uh, you know, they devastated the unions. The unions uh, had uh, like 22% of the workforce 
uh, unionized in the private sector. And today, I think there's like six or seven percent of mm-hmm. the private sector workforce. And most of that is, uh, uh, you, know, you know, public. Uh, well, that's the private uh, public is in di- public workers are in addition, in addition to that. So it's like 10 percent, including mm-hmm. public workers. Uh, but most of that's transport workers because you can't offshore transport, you see. And that was a big way uh, they offshore manu- a lot of manufacturing and even some non-manufacturing. But you can't offshore a public uh, employment and you can't offshore uh, transport. And those are the only unions that really uh, uh, remained with, with some uh, leverage and, and influence uh, and membership. But even there, there were ways of uh, uh, driving membership down, like passing uh, competition acts and trucking, the Trucking Act, the Airline Act in mm-hmm. 1980. Uh, the point is, uh, we, we get uh, 40 years of concession bargaining where unions are given up, uh, not only rolling back wages and so forth and benefits, but also giving up important contract language, uh, workers' rights and union rights and expanding of management rights in, in turn. Uh, and that uh, is part of neoliberal industrial policy for the last 40, 43 years. Uh, and the question is, to bring it up to the present, uh, are we seeing now the beginning of the end of that? Uh, are the unions with some new leadership finally? Uh, and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, real wages have been so poor, so poorly uh, uh, grown over the years here. Um, you know, if you go back to uh, 1982, if you look at the, the whole class and, you know, non-supervisory production service workers, uh, their real wages, adjusted for inflation, are less than they were in 1982. Uh, so, uh, and, and then you look at the auto workers. Uh, why are the auto workers so adamant? Well, their real wages in the last four years have uh, declined 19%. You know, they've gone backwards 19% in four years only, not counting the years before that. During the same period, the CEOs of the big auto companies have seen uh, their pay packages increased 40 percent. That's why when a union walked out, you know, they say, well, you you got 40, 40 percent. We make the cars. So we're going to ask for 40 percent, too. Uh, They're at 36 right now. When they walked out, they they, uh, reduced it to 36 and the companies are at uh, 20 percent, except in before we um and that's before we go into the specifics of the demands just to go back to the stand-up strike a little bit you know one thing i just want to raise there there does appear to be some interesting ways that the strategy appears to be successful successful you know on the one hand we're seeing reports that um the companies are kind of off guard so they're anticipating one plant striking they divert parts to other plants that turns out to the plant they sent to was striking. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's an interesting, from an organizer perspective, um, an element of escalation here. Whereas, you know, if everyone went out strike at the beginning, right now the media wouldn't be saying anything about it. And I think for workers, it would kind of be dragging on. But I think there's an interesting element of every week now, it dominates a new cycle again. And there's sort of this perspective from workers that things are are continuing to build and build, which I think could be helpful in a large strike. And you do mention in the article, there's an, an aspect of this of preserving the strike fund. You know, I think it's something like 700 something million they have, which seems like a lot, but that's going to dry up very quickly. At, I think it's $500 a week um, for, you know, over 100,000 workers. Um, so, I, you know, 
just before we move on to their demands, you know, any any thoughts on that? These other yeah, that, that's such an important uh, important topic. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that strategy that they call stand up. You know, it's really uh, uh, a step by step uh, escalation of the pressure uh, on on the companies here. Um, first week, uh, you know, they only struck one plant each. I mean, that's nothing. That's a token move, and I don't think that. Uh, you know, convinces uh, the companies in any way of, uh, well, let's get back to the table. Um, and then, uh, of course, they expanded it here to 38 uh, plants, and they're focusing on, on Ford. Uh, typically, the, the UAW used to do pattern bargaining, which was let's strike all of one company, uh, get that uh, negotiated, you know, put the pressure there, losing uh, customers to the other two, uh, and then... Um, you know, we'll we'll take that pattern and we'll we'll use it to, for the other companies to settle on as well. Uh, I'm I'm not so sure that that's the best tactic. Uh, you know, step by step, uh, and and that's because you know I've been in many strikes myself, some of them very long, and uh, there's a certain dynamic that occurs in the strike, uh, and uh, the the tough point is four weeks. You know, that's when uh, the house and mortgage note and the rent and the car note and everything comes due. And that's when uh, workers start feeling the pressure. Uh, and, and you want to get to uh, the crunch point with, with the company as soon as you can, as soon as you can, uh, because time uh, doesn't work on, on the side of the worker. Now, of course, the companies, uh, you know, they're losing business as well, uh, but they got lots of ways of, uh, of recouping uh, through the tax system and, uh, and uh, you know, with their suppliers, some of their losses. The workers don't have that, you see. Uh, and uh, that four-week four point is an important point. Um, two weeks is kind of another uh, point of, of you better escalate at two weeks, which, you know, UAW has done, and uh, four weeks. I think they're, they're moving back to their traditional pattern bargaining, uh, strike one, one company uh, fully and hard and, uh, you know, bring them to a settlement and then, then schedule it. So if that's what they're at now or next week when they escalate more, um, what do they really gain in two, three weeks of this step uh, escalation? I, I don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm not, uh, I mean, I may be wrong. I may be, uh, you know, it may be that the parts uh, suppliers uh, um, can do their job and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the company will lay people off and maybe they'll be able to get unemployment benefits at that time. Uh, although it's hard to get unemployment benefits in a labor strike now, mm -hmm. even if you get laid off. Uh, so I, I guess I'm more skeptical of whether the stand-up strike is really the right strategy. And in any event, I see them uh, eventually moving to, by the four-week mark, back to their old uh, strategy of strike one company. In this case, it's Ford. Um, and put all the pressure on that one company. If that's the case, uh, you know, did they lose some weeks and some time? Because time is of the essence, you know. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see. And uh, uh, stand up strike. Uh, maybe that's a new strategy that works. But uh, my initial response was I was a little skeptical of that. Mm -hmm. And um, so you started to a little bit go into 
you know, what are what are the actual demands UAW is is fighting for? So could you go into that again and, and kind of maybe put it in the context of this concession bargaining that's been the trend for four decades? How do these yeah. demands kind of yeah. match up and, and relate to that? Yeah. Well, uh Two, two of the biggest concessions that need to be reversed in order to uh, end concession bargaining, there are others, but two of them are, you got to get rid of this two-tier system. Uh, I mean, this is just the way that uh, the company manipulates its cost to reduce its cost of any settlement they, they eventually agree to. It's a way of uh, pitting one group of workers against the other. Uh, you know, there's a lot, lots of advantages to management with the, the two-tier system. Uh, that's got to end, okay? Uh, we, we saw that as an issue as well uh, in the Teamsters negotiations, and, and it's rampant across all, all of American labor management relations now because it's such an advantage for the companies. Uh, the Teamsters closed the gap, as I understand. The gap is the, the wage gap in the two-tier. You know, you have a separate wage structure, different start rate, different top rate. takes you longer to get to the top of the wage progression, uh, with seniority than uh, the first you know, wage structure for, for the older, more established workers. Uh, it's, it's shorter to get to the top. The wages are higher. So um, the whole idea of getting rid of the two-tier, you can do it in steps. Uh, in other words, you can raise the minimum wage and start wage for the second tier so it's the same as the first tier. You can reduce the amount of progression steps to get to the top. You can have the same top tier. Uh, or you can abolish it outright all, all at once, which is harder to do. But it seems like the Teamsters have made a big, uh, took a big bite out of the uh, the whole uh, two-tier uh, wage structure. We'll see whether the auto workers can do the same. I mean, their demand correctly when you go in is get rid of it. Uh, and uh, there'll be probably some compromise. We'll see, uh, you know, what it is. But uh They've got to uh, eliminate it. The problem is that now labor negotiations go forward five years. You know, it takes you a long time to come back and complete the, whatever strategic objectives you have. It used to be in my day, uh, three years was the most. And uh, in many cases, it was one or two years. And now it's four or five years. Five years seems to be the average. Uh, the workers are at four years when they walked out. Uh, the companies are at, uh, I, I mean, uh, I think they're four and a half, four and a half or maybe the company said four and a half. Uh, I, I think the settlement will be five years and they'll throw more money into the pot in order to get the workers to buy a five-year agreement. Um, cost of living adjustment. Uh, the worker, the auto workers, I think gave that up in 2007 or nine or mm -hmm. something when they walked out. That's very important as we see now. Inflation is just ravaging uh, workers' real uh, real wages. Uh, and it's worse than it's uh, reported by government uh, labor department statistics. There, that's a whole other story of how they uh, get to lowball the uh, the actual inflation. I, I write about that in my blog a lot, JackRasmus.com. If you want to mm -hmm. see my arguments, how uh, the inflation adjustment or the inflation numbers are really uh, lowball. They're actually a, at least a couple percent higher than they're reporting. But anyway, inflation really uh, devastates uh, workers' wages. And uh, you know, UAW uh, auto workers have gone back, uh, and uh, everyone's going back now in the last couple of years significantly. Uh, you needed, I, I would estimate, at least 10% uh, initial wage uh, raise to make up for 2022. 
alone. And then 2023, at the end of this, uh, we're going to see probably, um, well, the government says it's uh, it's three, four percent, but uh, um, it's it's really five or six percent right now. And looks like uh, with uh, gasoline prices going up and rents going up and uh, certain processed food and insurances and uh, utilities all going up, it's more than uh, the three, four percent they're reporting. Uh, so you've got to restore the COLA, the cost of living adjustment clause, as we said. That's extremely important. Th- those two markers, the COLA and the two-tier, uh, have to be eliminated. Uh, and the third, I would say, you know, uh, union pensioners, uh, uh, those folks have really taken it uh, in the ear. And uh, can you make some adjustment to take care of pensioners? Uh, those three things, if the union makes some significant gains in those three areas, uh, I would say it's uh, it's taken a long step uh, towards ending concession bargaining. Uh, we'll we'll see what the result is. Yeah. And um, just one note on tier, since you mentioned, you know, my uh, day job is actually I work on staff with Teamsters for a Democratic Union, the uh, Reform Caucus and the Teamsters. And just a note on that tier question, um, you know, 2018, two-tier was introduced at UPS among the drivers. And so, you know, when the Teamsters were talking about two-tier, primarily they meant between the drivers, and that actually was totally eliminated in this contract immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, the other tier, um, if you want to call it a tier, is between part-timers and full-timers. I think there was a big step made on that. But the, the primary two-tier actually was eliminated. And I do think, you know, um, why I think it's a little tougher, UAW has a little bit of a tougher fight, is A, it's more entrenched, it's been there longer. And I and my understanding is, is there's multiple levels of tiers. It's not just two, there's like, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's, as you said, incredibly important to eliminate tiers um, and, and get those out of contracts. Um, yeah, let me let me just comment yeah. on that. Uh, it's, it's important because the company uses two tier to reduce uh, the initial package it agrees to. You know, it could agree to a, a 25% uh, wage package over four years or whatever. Uh, but if, if you've got two tier, uh, then you've got the, the older workers retiring and they hire new workers at a lower wage. So they're actually taking back some of the uh, wages they agreed to uh, initially. So, and that's why they, they like it so much. Uh, right. There's other ways they can manipulate because usually the second tier uh, has uh, less uh, rights in terms of seniority and promotions yeah, and, yeah. and so forth. So uh, uh, it, it's it, it, it's a stake in the heart of, of oh, yeah. uh, unions and, and they mm-hmm. got to remove that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to switch gears a little bit, um, I wanted to make sure to get this question in. You know, there was a time in this country where union leaders were household names, even among people who weren't in unions. So, you know, people like Walter Ruther, of course, a former UAW president, Jimmy Hoffa, not always for the best reasons, but uh, Harry Bridges, um, John L. Lewis, in a more local sense in New York, people like Mike Quill. And I think we're kind of seeing the beginning of maybe a return of these kind of charismatic union leaders. So, you know, during the UPS contract campaign towards the end, Sean O'Brien from the Teamsters made the round on TV. I personally think Sean Fain has been a very effective communicator. If you remember Mike Lynch from the rail workers in the UK mm-hmm. going viral, um, and Sarah Nelson from the flight attendants. So, you know, these leaders, I think, are, have been very effective communicators of the message. 
to the American public, and especially in this moment where the public is on labor's side. So, I mean, what do you think of this development? I mean, is is that meaningful at all? Um, is it actually happening? Uh, does it have any consequence that maybe these union leaders are becoming more prominent public figures again? Well, it's a pretty low bar for the new leadership to uh, to jump over, and there is some some indication that they are a, a better crop than some of those we had during the worst years of uh, neoliberal industrial policy. Uh, you know, uh, Provenzano and the Teamsters, as you probably know, uh, and some of the others. Uh, uh, you know, really, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, well, I'm not going to say, you know, on air what I thought of some of these guys. <laughs> they, they, they were really there to uh, do the bidding of uh, the companies. You got to realize too that uh, uh, since neoliberalism, uh, the government has played uh, even a more aggressive uh, intervention role here uh, than than it did, uh, you know, before 1980. Uh, on, on the side of the employers, in, in most cases, we saw that in a railroad strike, right? Uh, here's the railroad workers uh, a year or so ago, and all they wanted was some uh, time off, paid time off, some sick time, because they only had like uh, one or two days uh, in their contract a year, personal leave that they could take when they're sick. And, uh, you know, the uh, railroads uh, coming out of COVID, uh, they just didn't hire people back. They're running on a 70% uh, workforce. So the existing workers had to work like hell, uh, you know, huge uh, overtime and uh, driving them, uh, you know, their health down because that's what happens. Uh, and uh, all they wanted was, uh, what was it, uh, 10, eventually it was like 10 paid leave days, which is just standard, mm-hmm. you know, in most union contracts at least. Uh, and, uh, you know, the railroads wouldn't even give them that. And uh, then you got the government uh, stepping in and, uh, you know, Pelosi and Biden threatening uh, anti-strike legislation. I mean, they didn't even bother to use the Railway Labor Act, which like uh, the Taft-Hartley Act allows the government to impose. Well, I think they did have a freeze of sort. I I take that back. Uh, But, uh, you know, they just came down hard on the side of the employers. Uh, I mean, we hadn't seen anything like that in decades. Uh, well, I can't even remember uh, historically where uh, the government stepped in since the PATCO strike, maybe, hmm. right? On the side of the employers. Um, you know, the, the point is, uh, uh, labor leaders today have a tougher job, I think, uh, because of the government uh, intervention. And yet you still see so many of them who are trying to hide under the apron strings of the Democratic Party. I think that's a strategic problem of labor. Labor should be more independent politically. Uh, you know, when, when you rely on a political party as much as some of the leaders in the past have, you know, and it looks like there's a little bit of break there with uh, O'Brien and Fain, maybe, you know. Uh, and that, that actually gets to, you kind of anticipate my next question, you know, um, I, a move I thought was good on Fain's part, you know, uh, so far UAW leadership has refused to endorse Joe Biden because of Inflation Reduction Act, which is subsidizing, you know, low-wage non-union electric vehicles. Um, of course, Biden, you know, this strike is now taking on political implications. Biden showing up to the picket line. Trump making comments, holding rallies. Um, but again, so far, to be clear, UAW has been clear that they are not endorsing Biden unless they see a change. Um, so what do you make of how this strike is becoming a kind of a political focal point? 
Well, you know, a lot of the auto plants are in those swing states, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what these two uh, politicians uh, see as important here. Uh, so that's that's why they're pandering of sorts uh, to the auto workers. Uh, I don't see them doing much. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Biden is sitting on billions. I don't know how many billions of uh, direct subsidies for the auto companies to build their EV plants in the U.S. I, I mean, he could uh, very easily, uh, you know, say, hey, you know, I may not release this if you guys uh, don't don't uh, play fair here with, with your workers. Uh, by the way, you know, just as an addendum to, uh, uh, you know, what's what's an indication of ending of uh, concession bargaining. Uh, you know, these EV plants uh, for the auto workers are very important because uh, the companies uh, are going to uh, use fewer workers in these plants. I mean, you just don't need all the parts uh, for, uh, you know, an electric vehicle. And the issue of job security for these auto workers is extremely important, along with the coal, along with the two tier. Uh, I mean, this is a difficult fight for the union and everybody should be supporting them because, uh, um, you know, if they can break through, the Teamsters got a foot in the door, you know, if they can break through and uh, end this two tier stuff, um, you know, that will be a, a, a very important uh, uh, landmark uh, in, in the union movement here. You know, the other that we, we may talk about is what's going on with the writers and uh, the actors. We can talk about that mm -hmm. technology. That, that's also another historic struggle going on, uh, just like uh, this, this is a historic strike uh, for the auto workers. You know, not right. the strategy, the, the fact of the strike and the issues are historic. Right. And um, I will come back to the writer's strike. But first, um, just to hone in on, on electric uh, vehicle production, um, you know, it, it's playing an interesting role. So, you know, again, Fane and the UAW are saying these should be union jobs. They're, they want to pressure Biden on that. But, you know, I think a broader thing we all should take into account, it, it's not just a right wing talking point that there is a risk to jobs here. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote an article of Jacobin based on an economic Policy Institute study that kind of laid out that um, if we do not um, move production along the whole EV supply chain, so batteries, parts, and all that sort of thing, as well as the vehicles, it will re result in a net job loss um, because it just it just takes fewer workers to build uh, electric vehicles. So you know you want to say more about just the overall economic dynamics of electric vehicle production, um, how this is going to affect workers, how the companies might be looking at this. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, part of what was improperly called the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, this, these are the subsidies for uh, alternative energy, and this is uh, what uh, part of the subsidies to the uh, auto companies actually bribes, you know, uh, build in the U.S. and we'll pay for part of your plant, right, uh, is really what that is about. Uh, and the government has leverage, but, you know, Biden's not really using it. Maybe uh, later down the road he might, but uh, he's certainly not using it uh, right away. And I, I, I won't predict that he would. Um, it's very important because it's part of uh, changing technology. Uh, you know, can workers protect themselves uh, and their wages and their jobs uh, against the accelerating technological change that's going on? Uh, you know, it's not just the EV plants, uh, but it's uh, you know, chat GPT and uh, all 
artificial intelligence and uh, this this tech technology is uh, escalating it's accelerating uh, and there's a danger a very very big danger for uh, uh, new technologies and uh, workers jobs uh, their very employment you know notwithstanding their wages and their benefits uh, so uh, yeah it's it's part of the historic fight not only to end and uh, concession bargaining, but the future. This is all about the future we're seeing right now. And, uh, you know, workers uh, know it, know in their, uh, in their gut that uh, they better do something now because the next 10 years, you know, you could lose it all if you don't do something about it now. Yeah, you have an uncanny ability to anticipate all my next questions. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this this question of, you know, what used to be more so just referred to as automation, but now increasingly AI is becoming a big issue in union contract negotiations. Um, of course, the Writers Guild and the actors, and we can talk about that in a second, but not just there. I mean, UPS is starting to try to build totally automated centers. Um, one of the things won in the 2023 contract was UPS has to at least you know, any sort of automation change cannot happen without the union uh, uh, approving it and they have to meet and there's guidelines. Um, we just had the issue, Gavin Newsom in California vetoing a bill that the Teamsters were supporting and pressuring on, you know, to mandate, uh, you know, a, a person on a truck with over, I think, 10,000, uh, uh, I, I forget the exact figure, but uh, a truck of a certain weight. Um, so this is playing out everywhere. And, you know, and I think some of these demands that actually are not new demands are getting revived. So, I mean, leaders like Harry Von Arsdale from the electrical workers, you know, in the 50s and 60s was pushing for a 32 hour work week. Um, leaders like A. Philip Randolph, Byron Rustin were sounding the alarm about what is automation going to do to black workers in the inner cities. You know, Sean Fain has put the demand for a 32 hour work week um, on the table as well. So yeah, do you want to talk about I me? Mean, how do you see this playing out in different industries? I mean, any you know, we can talk about the Writers Guild uh, strike. Um, I mean, what is in store for unions and AI, and and how is this going to affect bargaining in the future? Well, I I, I would begin by saying uh, just go and read uh, Goldman Sachs research. The bank Goldman Sachs right uh, put out a study here. I think it was last year where they predicted. Uh, artificial intelligence uh, will eliminate or reduce hours for 130 million workers. 130 million. You know, majority of those will be in the U.S. and in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. In Japan, that's a lot of jobs, right? Uh, how is this going to happen? And don't think of, don't even use the word automation anymore, because automation, you know, conjures up the idea of of, of robots, right? And uh, somehow uh, these physical devices are going to take our jobs. No, it's software. It's all about soft. AI is software. It's software machines. And the whole essence of artificial intelligence is to eliminate simple decision-making jobs, whether it's simple decision on an assembly line or whether it's simple decision in a retail store or uh, in a service sector, you know, uh, customer service reps or uh, backroom accountants or whatever. Uh, simple decision-making jobs will be eliminated now. Uh, and we see that proven uh, by, you know, the latest introduction or advance in AI called chat GPT, GPT-4, whatever, which is just the beginning. 
natural language processing. Uh, and uh, these, quote, software machines will talk to us and they'll sound just like a, uh, a human being. Uh, and, and that's a big, uh, big question uh, for the writers as they knew it. Uh, the writers knew, well, you know, if they can write, uh, if these software machines uh, using natural language can write scripts or, or uh, review scripts and, and or, uh, you know, amend scripts, well, what's the role for the writer? Right. Uh, and the whole thing about AI is it's based on a massive uh, uh, database of information. Well, where are they going to get the information from the scripts? Well, from the scripts written by the writers. Right. So they're they're going to use what they've written uh, to uh, take the jobs away. And, and they know it. Uh, and uh, I, I can't uh, I can't speak enough about the dangers of AI in terms of job destruction. Uh, I had a radio show not far back, and uh, I am writing an article myself called Artificial Intelligence versus the Working Class. Uh, we're looking at a very serious uh, situation uh, that's moving very fast, and by uh, you know 2030, we'll really be here. Uh, you know, in, in the trucking industry, uh, it's technology, sensor technology, and, and the driverless cars and trucks. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a million uh, local truck drivers in this country, but a lot of these local trucks, uh, truck distribution is, is going to be uh, uh, driverless or or it's going to be, uh, uh, OK, you may have some somebody sitting in the UPS truck. Right. Uh, but they won't be driving it and therefore they'll pay you a lesser wage. That's how they will get the camel's nose under the tent, you see. Uh, there's so many ways that it's it's a big threat. AI is a big threat. And the fundamental thing is eliminating uh, simple decision making uh, uh, jobs uh, and natural language, whether it's written, you know, in the case of the writers or spoken in the case of the actors, you know, a lot of voiceover acting and uh, even uh, some of the new uh, animated created actors. Um, you know, they won't need to, you know, you'll, you'll license your, you're an actor and maybe you're James Earl Jones or something uh, and you, you'll license your voice and uh, they'll just use your voice. Hmm. Um, and of course, there's the, so many ways that, uh, that, that it's going to penetrate and the writers know it and the act, actors know it too. And they're fighting a valiant strike. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I don't think they have even any, uh, uh, strike benefits. I may be wrong on that, but you know the uh, writers st stayed out for four months. That's that's a uh, he heroic, you know, mm -hmm. four month strike. Uh, of course, with the actors, I mean the other for the extras. I mean the companies want to just you know get your image. You act one time, get paid one. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and right. Uh, you know, I used to be a teacher before my current job, and I'm I can just say I'm glad I don't have to deal of chat GBT and the effects, you know, in the classroom and in education. And it, as kind of a follow up question to what we were just talking about, I mean, does this for you point to the need? I mean, it, yes, you can take this issue on in bargaining around artificial intelligence in different ways. Um, but th I mean, does this point to a need for the unions to be to turn to a political solution of uh, things like a legislated shorter work week or shorter day? Um, can, can it really be addressed ultimately at the level of, of collective bargaining? That's a very good, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a difficult issue. 
uh, I'm not sure that it can be. Uh, maybe the strongest unions uh, might be able to blunt it uh, and get a voice, you know, a veto and a voice maybe over some of this. Uh, but yes, I think it uh, it needs to be a political solution. The problem is uh, there's so much money being made and to be made with AI. That train has left the station and the politicians uh, aren't even going to try and stop it. And all this uh, conferences about the uh, old ethics and AI, I mean, that's just window dressing. Uh, nothing's going to happen there. Uh, and it's very dangerous. Um, you know, it's it's going to have even a greater impact than the whole shift that occurred under neoliberalism to uh, uh, temporary and part-time work and gig work. You know, that that destroyed a lot of good jobs or created the low-pay jobs, you know, uh, in contingent jobs. Uh, you know, we got like 50 million people who are part-time temp gig workers in this country out of 160 million labor force. That's huge. And, and that's played a big role in driving down... Uh, uh, wage compression over the years. Uh, and uh, I think this whole AI thing uh, is going to dwarf the impact of uh, that whole contingent worker, gig worker uh, problem. And um, I think a good question maybe to end on, um, you know, as, as someone that is involved in the labor movement and loves the labor movement, I am, of course, excited about by the activity we've seen these last few years. But I, I've also always been stretching the people to be cautious before declaring, you know, this is the next great labor upsurge. This is it. You know, we just, I think in reality, we just don't know yet where this will go. You know, one sobering fact I point out to people is you could add up all the Starbucks workers who have organized so far, and it wouldn't amount to as many workers in a big Amazon plant or a big UPS facility, uh, which of course is not an argument not to support them. And of course, we do see stuff happening at UPS and Amazon, but it's just something sometimes a, a story like that can get out in the media and seem like it's it's a bigger impact than it might have. So for you, I mean, what would you be looking for in these next few years in the labor movement to see that we actually really are on this? What would have to happen for you to kind of conclude we actually are moving into a different period, a moment where labor is really coming back in a, a meaningful way? I think labor needs significant changes in its strategy. Uh, you know, uh, the the whole form of uh, of struggle is uh, well. Let's uh, negotiate uh, contracts here uh, and do it. Um, you know, every four or five years, and we're in these stovepipes. You know, I mean, teamsters are here, and auto workers are here, and so forth. We're in these stovepipes. Uh, and and uh, that worked in the 30s and 40s when you had industrial and you weren't globalized uh, markets. Uh, I, I think, you know, now, and I wrote about this some years ago, uh, that uh, somehow we have to find a new form of organization, not where we use it to replace the old. No, you, you know, the current has to continue the way it is, but there's got to be a new form of, of union organization, maybe on a regional basis and uh, using uh, uh, local committees on uh, of various members from various unions uh, to build solidarity and to assist uh, each other and bring in the community uh, on, uh, you know, when there are strikes, when there are boycotts for political action and so forth. Uh, somehow we need a structure where uh, unions aren't going after this uh, 
you know, individual union by individual union. Uh, somehow the, the force of the class and, uh, you know, solidarity has to be built somehow. Or an organization, it's an organization question, I think, is, is the real question. Because we can't go after this, you know, maybe uh, the strongest unions uh, like UPS or, uh, you know, the Kaiser workers or something uh, can slow it down and can even make some gains, uh, break through this concession bargaining. But what happens to the rest? You know, I mean, uh, the best and strongest unions, even with better leadership, uh, you're still only talking about three, four percent of the labor force. Right. You, you really got to somehow bring all of it together, all the union workers uh, together. You know, in the FLCIO, that's just the talk shop, you know, at the top. That's the talk shop where the individual unions get together and, uh, uh, you know, talk about uh, how much money they're going to give to the Democrats. Um, it, my point is, it's an organization question. We have to see a new kind of organization that, uh, you know, somehow um, brings more solidarity and joint action uh, of union workers and non-union workers and community. You know, we hear a lot about the Community Labor Alliance, but what's the form for that? You know, you, you, it can't be one where, uh, okay, the union's on strike. We want to help you. Want, you, you know, we want your community leaders to help us with a boycott, you know, or it can't be, uh, well, we'll come in March. Uh, you know, the unions will come in March with you when you have an issue over housing. Uh, I mean, uh, it's got to be something more effective. And the question is organization. Uh, that's the the mon number one question. What new form of organization? Just like politically, the question it's an organization question. Uh, I mean, we can't uh, we can't be labor cannot continue to rely on these two wings of the corporate party of America, and that's what the Democrats and Republicans are. One throws you a few more crumbs, uh, but when uh, you know the time is ripe, they play a role in taking it back, uh, and we saw that under Obama. You know, Obama comes out in 2008, nine, 787 billion, you know, in the recovery program. And then in 2011, a trillion dollars in the taking back programs, uh, program cuts, right? And then he passes $5 trillion for another 10 years of the Bush tax cuts. Uh, well, we're seeing the same thing with Biden here. Uh, you know, we got $4 trillion that was spent on, on COVID and so forth. And uh, then he um, gives the Build Back Better program, the Deep Six, and takes $1.65 trillion, and he gives it to businesses and the subsidies in these three acts, you know, the Infrastructure Act, the CHIP Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. So, uh, and, and there's going to be big austerity coming here, uh, you know, soon, as we see in Congress. Um, so... It's an organization question politically. It's an organization question in terms of the union and unions at the, you know, at the economic level. We need a new kind of organization. Not where you throw the old out for the new, you know, but an overlay on top of the old, because uh, we're not going to give up collective bargaining, right? And we're not going to give up contracts. Anyone who says that is, you know, dreaming uh, a nightmare, in fact. <laughs> Uh, we, but we've got to have something that brings workers and union workers and non-union workers together uh, to uh, have one voice, to have one voice so that, uh, you know, their influence is greater than it has been. We're fragmented. We're atomized 
and uh, that's a road to nowhere. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on the next episode, Jack will solve the organization question. Um, but thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I have to say, I was uh, today years old when I learned that you have a musical. So I think one episode you should perform that musical on This Is Revolution. Um, but thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, actually, actually, uh, I'm in some discussions with the ILWU. We're talking about maybe a, a putting up the play uh, as a benefit for the Actors Union in LA. Okay. We'll, we'll see where that goes. Kind of like a pins and needles uh, revival. Oh, much better, much, <laughs> much better. better. Okay. <laughs> it's all uh, original, all original new labor yeah. stuff. Okay. Well, definitely let me know if, if that okay. happens. Um, so uh, remember to like and subscribe. Keep your eyes peeled for Jason's new work coming out and a possible book event. Thank you again, Jack, for joining us. And we are out.